After more than a year of physical distancing, quarantine, and lockdowns in the COVID pandemic, vaccine passports are seen as something to bring us together or divide us even more. Which will it do? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. Red zones, limited capacity of any capacity at all and a deep red on the bottom line. The pandemic has turned everything upside down, and we are desperate for any sense of normalcy. That's why the vaccine passport is bringing a breath of possible optimism to a bleak situation. But if it was a silver bullet, they would have done it long ago. While they may be seen to help open the economy and travel, the vaccine passport could also separate us from or into have and have-nots. Our unpublished vote question asked you, do you feel vaccine passports will help reopen the economy? 12% said yes. 87% said no. Just 1% were unsure. Now, however you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. And joining us to discuss the use and need of vaccine passports, Lori Turnbull's the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Marcus Kolga is the founder of disinfowatch.org and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Francois Bayliss, university research professor in bioethics at Dalhousie University, and Marvin Ryder's assistant professor at the DeGroot School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. And I thank you all for joining us. And let, let's just go around the horn. We'll start with you, Lori, first. Uh, you know, when we talk about vaccine passports, and I, you know, I mentioned this is not a scientific poll, but of our viewers, only 12%, just 12% see that as helping to reopen the economy. I would have thought that number would have been higher. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I would have thought it would have been higher too. I mean, I guess it depends on whether you've you've kind of sunk this into your mind as a possibility or as I think some have have internalized it as almost an inevitability. I think that at a certain point when we are going to be able to open things up with much less restrictions or maybe, you know, something that would look like no restrictions, the way into that, it seems to me an obvious one is for everybody to have something that says I've been vaccinated and so we don't have to do this anymore. But I'm not sure, like apart from that, how we would actually make that work. I know the mm -hmm. government of Quebec has been thinking pretty, you know, that they've started their thinking on that quite a bit. And so I wonder if one province starts it, you know, how how others aren't going to follow suit after that. What do you think, Marcus? Uh, I thought 12% was kind of low. 12% uh, is is remarkably low. I would have thought it to be much higher as well. Um, but I'd, I'd agree with Laurie. I don't, I'm not sure that uh, Canadians are thinking this far ahead right now. I think we're still struggling uh, to come to grips with the uh, with the lockdown, how we're dealing with it. And as, as things are easing, I don't think we've looked far ahead collectively or that far ahead as to how everything might open up. Look, in the context of, of travel, um, we already know uh, British Airways just announced last week that they're going to, as of May, they're going to require uh, some form of vaccine uh, vaccination certification before you get onto a British Airways mm -hmm. plane. Um, there are multiple other airlines in the Middle East. Singapore Airlines just piloted a uh, vaccine passport uh, last week. And so, and we also know that the European Union has mentioned that uh, they will be requiring um, vaccination certificates, vaccine passports for travel. Now, not necessarily for within the EU because it's uh, mobility is a guaranteed right within the European Union, 
But for Canadians, um, you know, we're going to need some sort of certificate coming along, no matter where we travel. So this is something I think that we simply need to to prepare for uh, when we're talking about the business and businesses and economy. Um, you know, I think that's a big question mark. Uh, you know, I've been wondering what insurance companies might be uh, mm. doing as far as uh, you know mitigating any sort of risk uh, with regards to the those that they're insuring. You know, if uh, Rogers wants to open up. Uh, uh, baseball games in the summer, um, you know, their insurance yeah. uh, company is going to have want to have a say on that. So um, I just don't think that we've started looking that far ahead at this at this time. And uh, but it's something that I think the government and provincial governments need to be preparing for. What do you think, Francoise? Uh, I, I found it uh, quite remarkable considering, uh, you know, everybody's need and want to get back to normal that you know, just just over. Well, 10%. I actually think that's a wonderful number because it shows that a vast majority of Canadians are smarter than we give them credit for. Um, the reason I say that is lots of people are talking about vaccine passports as if they're going to be inevitable. And I can see, you know, on the horizon, it looks like everything will be wonderful. But when you actually start looking at the details, it's not so obvious it's going to achieve the goal that people think it's going to achieve. So I understand the desire to travel. I'd like to be doing that, too. I don't think this is the means to get there. So what do you, you think, know, Marvin? The, sorry, can I just say one more thing? Sure, go ahead. I think one of the things that I do want to say, because I'd like us to come back to this, is when you talk about what's inevitable, the only thing that's inevitable is that you will get a vaccine certificate, which will provide you with information about what vaccine you received, when you received it, if you need a second dose, etc. That's the only thing that's inevitable. And I think what's striking is we have to pay attention to the multiple uses. You might think that, oh, international travel looks great, but now you're thinking about, okay, how's it going to affect, as you said, access to insurance? How is it going to affect uh, migration? How's it going to affect refugee status? How's it going to affect uh, domestic travel? How's it going to affect access to bars? And I think people would be rightfully worried about, you know, uh, Big Brother. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, now, Marvin, jump in now. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I was surprised at how low that number was of people who think that's just the answer. Well, let me jump on Francois's uh, bandwagon sure. here. I'm not all that shocked for a couple of reasons. First, if the question was, how important is this going to be to reopen the economy? International travel for us in Canada is just actually a very small part of this. It's much more important to those nations where we would be traveling to. Uh, so, you know, for us locally, it's not that big of a deal. And I would just make two quick points. The first is, uh, are we going to require it to go from one province to another or maybe even one city? If I have to go to Windsor, Ontario, is someone going to meet me at the border and say, let me see your vaccination certificate? We've never restricted flow within the country like that before. And that's a concern. And then here's the other thing to remember. Uh, I don't know if I might be the only person on this panel. I was lucky enough to get a COVID shot yesterday, and I have one of those little pieces of paper. But what it makes very clear is, although I am protected from the bad effects of COVID, I can still pass COVID to others. Thus, I still have to have my mask. It won't affect me, but I could be a carrier. So in terms of allowing free movement of people, it might seem to let me go anywhere. But if I'm Typhoid Mary or Typhoid mm -hmm. Marvin, uh, traveling everywhere, I'm not sure that's going to help. Yeah, exactly. And then the, thus, then we get into our have and have not situation. And, and, and Lori, I, I wonder, can, can these vaccine passports give a false sense of, of, of security when we don't know if a vaccinated person can transmit the virus? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, to be honest, like, I, I'm not sure that we're, if we go down this road, I would suspect we're going to see 
a lot of unintended consequences and a lot of unforeseen consequences. Like much of the handling of this whole thing, even when you've got a whole bunch of smart people trying to do the right thing, you know, like as they say, this is an evolving situation and we don't really know how it's all going to work out. And so I think if we, if we go down this road, whether um, it's because there's, there's a public push to do it or because there's an international G7 level push to do it, that's where I'm not sure that we have as many choices around this. I mean, the prime minister has indicated there's parts of this he's really not comfortable with. And we are at that table at the G7 to have a conversation about what this could look like. But no matter what happens, there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be people who are denied things for the wrong reasons, for no reason. There's going to be, you know, we run into all sorts of potential risks by way of a, a tiered style of citizenship where some people have access to things and some don't. And so, yeah, I mean, there's this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg, I think. But if I can, I think we do sure. have a choice. And I think the way in which we have a choice is we, ha we have to recognize that this is a global challenge. It's a global crisis. It's a pandemic. And so in that context, we have the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization is, in fact, looking at developing digital standards for certification because they recognize whatever kind of certification we're going to be using, we need to have it be common around the globe. But they have said explicitly that it should not be used for international travel, and they've given two reasons. One of them Marvin has already identified, which is that we actually don't have robust data to say that it's going to limit transmissibility. So you may not achieve the goal that you think you're going to achieve, first of all. But second of all, they've made the point, we don't have enough vaccine. So what are you really saying? You're just going to cut off a whole swath of people? And you know everybody's talking about this in the context of freedom of movement. But freedom of movement has typically been on the basis, for example, of citizenship. So within Canada, you can't stop at me at the border and say, I can't come into another province. Within the European Union, again, freedom of movement is based on citizenship. And now what you're looking at doing is making freedom of movement contingent on biology. That's terrible. It's not a path we want to go down because we're not only going to have challenges with respect to who has access to the vaccine, we're also going to have challenges with respect to, you know, who can't take the vaccine for legitimate medical reasons. And we may have other reasons, but at least that we'd have to recognize and make some allowances for. We have people who have been exposed to COVID through natural exposure. Um, and while they're being advised that they sh too should get the vaccine, they might not choose to do that. So you're going to have another standard there. So we'll have vaccination certificates for some who've been vaccinated. We'll have exposure to the virus for other people who are going to be hopefully having immunity in that way. We're going to have another kind of documentation for people who can't get it. We're going to have something separate for 16-year-olds who can't get it. I mean, I don't think when we think about it practically, you're going to achieve anything positive, you're actually going to put a lot of people at risk of harm and constrain a lot of other people's freedom of movement. Marcus, a number of countries, and you pointed out in your article, are in the midst of developing their, their own vaccine passport or, or ability to, to get people moving again. Why, why does Canada appear hesitant? Well, I think uh, we've we've gone through a number of the the issues. I mean, we don't we don't want to create two classes of citizens: one that's being vaccinated, one that hasn't. We don't want to restrict movement within our within our uh, within our own country. Um, the the fact is, though, is that this 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 could become a problem. We've already seen over the past year how uh, the border between Quebec and Ontario there were the the borders were essentially closed for travel. So we've already um, engaged in this sort of activity to limit. Uh, mobility within the country. Um, you mentioned other countries, and I think Francois mentioned uh, that the WHO is, develop is developing a passport. Um, they are indeed. They're they're developing uh, vaccination certification, and and they're doing this actually in 
uh, partnership with uh, the, the government of Estonia. Um, the government mm. of Estonia is, uh, is a pretty no, well-known uh, global leader in uh, digital democracy and e-governance. Uh, they take uh, privacy very seriously. And, and so they're actually working with the WHO to standardize um, the certification of vac- vaccinations. So, you know, I, I think that what we, we our government really needs to be doing is uh, while looking at how any sort of certification uh, is going to be applied, the, the ethical questions, the moral questions, ensuring that there's equity across the board, uh, but at the same time, looking at solutions that would ensure that if anything were to be put in place, whether it's uh, you know private businesses, whether again it's it's a foreign government or a series or a number of foreign governments that restrict travel, that we're prepared to address that and ensure that Canadians can keep moving, uh, moving about uh, traveling and also opening up. And so the the Estonian system actually seems to be working quite well. The um, There are several countries within the European Union that are already piloting this system. And the interesting thing about the Estonian system is that it's uh, it's blockchain based and is able, they're able to apply it as a second layer of data onto existing systems. So um, a legacy system in Quebec can speak to a system in, in Alberta, and that can speak to a provincial and municipal system. So it's it's quite we interesting. We can't do that right now. We don't have that IT capacity in this country. Well, Francois, this is uh, this is what makes this the Estonian system so beautiful, is that it, it adds a second layer. And you don't need to uh, build any additional infrastructure those legacy systems will actually speak to this blockchain-based system. And it can actually be deployed within three to four days and already speak to these, what seem to be disparate systems across the country. So we don't need any new infrastructure. I agree with you that our infrastructure is slow and, and probably inadequate to build a secondary system. But this Estonian system, again, builds a second layer of data that, that uh, through APIs is able to speak to every single one of those. That's, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, now, now, Marvin, uh, when we look at a situation like uh, vaccine passports, and you know, it, it it sounded like the the answer to everything. And then the more you delve into it, it you see all the pitfalls, the uh, the hoops you have to jump through, and, and that kind of a thing. Are we that desperate that you know we're we're throwing caution to the wind to get these things out as fast as yes. possible? Yeah. The short answer is yes. Uh, humans being humans, we like to move about. We don't like to be restricted. We don't want to be forced to be in our house. So we will do almost anything to be able to get back out doing something, whether that's traveling or visiting a restaurant or going to a, a shopping center. Yes. Now we can buy online, but there's a social aspect to all of those things that you don't get when you're at home. Uh, just to go back again quickly to vaccine passports, in the past, what's happened is if I've traveled and I've been lucky enough to visit some places like Africa, I had to have proof of vaccination, but the proof of vaccination was to protect me. So that, look, when you come to whatever country it is in Africa, you might be exposed to yellow fever or scarlet fever or something. We want to make sure that you're not going to be a burden on our healthcare system by getting sick. It wasn't about me uh, bringing something into that country. And it wasn't about me bringing something back because most of those diseases are not that transmissible. But in the pandemic, what we've learned about COVID is that I can be an asymptomatic carrier. And so it's not enough, I think, for me to prove that I've had a vaccination that protects me, but what can I do to protect the people I'm going to go visit in that country or the people I'm going to go visit when I come back? Uh, I will say to Marcus's point, 
you know, it's, I think it's hugely important that whatever the world decides to do, it is a worldwide or global solution. We don't want one solution in China and another solution in Estonia and another mm -hmm. solution in France. We need a common solution. But I'm not even sure if we can get agreement when that's going to allow that absolute free movement of people. But we are absolutely desperate to go back mm -hmm. to some distance, may not be all the way back to what we had in January, February of 2020, but to get as close to that as we can. And that's why we're prepared to do anything that way. But if I can say, I think one of the sure. things that's super important here is we should all be advocating for evidence-based policy. If you think about that, that's so important in terms of trust. And we've seen how, you know, amongst some people who are hesitant to get the vaccine, one of their concerns is, oh, well, you made some shortcuts in the science. I mean, that's not true, but that's what some people are worried about and believe. And so one of the things that I keep thinking, you know, we should be paying attention to here is this is a new technology. Where's the health technology assessment? There is none. Where's the data about the transmissibility? It's not there. So we need to really sort of pull back and think, do we just respond to some enthusiasm for some sense of normalcy or getting back to having fun times without actually paying attention to what good science is? And even in the report that was alluded to earlier today that came out from the European Commission a couple of days ago, they actually have said that they have no intention to even do an assessment of this whole program until a year after the pandemic is over, whenever that should be. I mean, who does that? Who does that? You're not going to pay attention to all of the unanticipated consequences along the way, should you bring something in? I mean, I think that this is really deeply problematic, and we need to have much more of a commitment to science-based policy. And Ed, again, I'm just going to jump in yeah, quickly and sure. say, uh, how do you also make sure these credentials are valid? So I got a COVID shot yesterday, and on a nice laser printer, I've got a receipt that says I was vaccinated on this date at this time. And it says the Ontario Ministry of Health. But I'll tell you, I could easily scan that document and generate a thousand of them and give them to anybody. How do we know? Now, Marcus gave the example of a, a, a blockchain based system that would mm -hmm. allow more authentication, but it's not enough to have a certificate. It's a certificate that has to mean something. It's a bit like once upon a time, there were these people, we called them degree mills, send them a thousand dollars and you've got a PhD, but it wasn't worth the paper it was printed on, if we're going to have some kind of vaccine passport, it's got to have some weight behind it. It can't just be a photocopied piece of paper. Exactly. So, exactly. Uh, Laurie, in, in terms of vaccine passports and discrimination, uh, and we've heard so many different ways, but you know, we've also heard about the, the anti-vaxxers, those who are hesitant to, to take the, the vaccine. Does this put them in a very unawkward position? Well, I mean, I think if if we if we take something like a vaccine passport or even vaccine certification and we say there are things that you can't do if you don't have this, you know, wherever whatever form it takes, whether it's digital or it's a piece of paper or whatever the case may be. I mean, then you're that's my worry about the kind of tiers of citizenship, right, where certain privileges, certain like opportunities, choices are available to you and they are scaled back if you didn't take this choice. And so, yeah, I mean, I think overall it has it, it has a kind of purposeful effect of restricting your choice not to get a vaccine. I can imagine models where if people cannot get a vaccine for health related reasons, that there's a sort of off ramp for them and that could be accommodated in any system that works well and is governed by the right intentions. But at the same time, it's, it's almost taking the option off the table to do opt out of the vaccine process and yet still be able to do all the things you want to do. And I, I think the more that becomes um, 
you know, like you can imagine a sort of cultural shift toward, you know, if you want to do anything, you've got to get a vaccine passport, you've got to get, you have to get a vaccine. And if more of the population thinks that it's not just the government that's going to breathe down your neck and tell you to do it, it's other people are going to, you know, that kind of cultural momentum against that choice is going to be really, really strong. And so then like, I think that's where, where some are a bit worried, many are worried that, that, you know, Mm -hmm. it could be used in some cases for the for the wrong reasons in the wrong ways government's going to have to be very careful about setting regulations for how this could be used by non-government actors and so then you get all the the unintended consequences i i wonder and i'll throw this at you francois if if the business community is pushing maybe a little too hard on on this being the answer i think the business community has been quite enthusiastic about this but i also think that that's ought to be seen as a warning sign for the government, which does say that the government has to get involved. Because when you look at this issue, there are the ethical issues, there's the scientific issues, there are the tech issues, but there are also the legal and policy issues. And so there needs to be really clear legislation in place to ensure that the kinds of things we can already anticipate in terms of discrimination, violations of privacy, and possible you know, misuses of this documentation that we actually got structures in place to protect the interests of citizens. You know, one of the things that's really important that we've been talking about the last few minutes is, you know, the validity of this documentation. If it's a piece of paper, can you photocopy it? But even if it's digital, somebody can hack it, et cetera. And in that context, one of the challenges then is how do I connect up this data about your, you know, vaccine certificate with you. One suggestion has been that we would have facial recognition apps on top of that. And it's like, well, we already know that those facial recognition apps are tremendously biased in terms of their functioning um, with people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so, you know, every time you think, you well, oh, we can solve it this way, you're actually making it really clear how potentially problematic this is for certain members of the community. And I can't say strongly enough that you know, there's all this enthusiasm for what you're going to do that you think is positive without necessarily paying attention to the limitations. And if I can, just one very quick example. Um, when Israel, you know, announced that it had a green pass, which is when it had reached um, more than 50% of the population had been vaccinated, they announced this to the world and there was all these wonderful pictures showing people who had gone to an outdoor concert. But if you looked at those images carefully, people are wearing their masks, people are socially distanced, the concert is outside. And so a part of me say, well, and why did you need to have a vaccine certificate on top of that? Those are the appropriate public health measures that you're going to have to have anyways, in terms of the concern right. about transmitting this to other people. And so I really think that we ought to be paying more attention to what is it that we need to do in terms of public health to continue to protect individuals? How do we get more time, money, attention on vaccination so that we can get closer to population immunity rather than investing a lot of that energy right now in something that I think is deeply problematic. So I think we should discuss it. I think we should be aware of what other places are doing, but I do worry about the shift in terms of attention, money, energy. Mm -hmm. uh, Marcus, uh, in terms of the vaccine passport, I was reading Colleen Flood's call, um, uh, I guess, column regarding the vaccine passport and basically urging governments to develop this before the private sector gets involved. And then there's a million different versions of it. Do you agree that's the way to go? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, what we're already seeing is private companies like British Airways who claim to be developing their own technology. If we have every single airline, uh, various different sporting companies, event companies, 
uh, all of these companies claiming to produce some sort of a certification, we're, we're going to run into serious problems, um, much worse than what France was, as has uh, suggested uh, uh, in our previous comments. Um, uh, so it is important that we have government sort of take control of this. If it's on the G7 level, uh, you know, again, the WHO uh, making sure that data privacy is secured. So the, this, the Estonian system that's being developed uh, does exactly that. It's GDPR compliant. Um, uh, being in the blockchain, it hashes all of the information that's uh, that's added to the certificate, but it also ensures provenance of the the vaccines that are that are administered. So it goes back to the uh, vaccine producers, the actual vaccine that has been administered through the entire um, uh, supply chain is traced, and so that certifies this this vaccination. And so you- doing it at, at doing it at that level is is really important. Um, again, making sure that governments are part of this. And, and, and Francois, I completely agree with you. I mean, the Canadian government needs to get on board with this right away and get into the discussion rather than letting uh, private business and others uh, take control of this. Because if we, if we don't control this on, the, on a government and on a federal level, it could become a runaway train, which could cause all sorts of privacy issues. And again, create that, uh, that tiered system or a tiered uh, citizenship of, of those who are vaccinated and those who are not. But you see, I think I'm worried about that, even in the context of what you're talking about. I mean, how do you imagine, for example, the small islands in the Caribbean having the infrastructure to deal with all of this high tech, you know, blockchain system, for example? I mean, you know, one of the things, again, is just to think about it in terms of practicalities, because I can imagine ways in which it could work very well for high income countries. I cannot imagine so easily how it's going to work for low and middle income countries. And that's why I keep wanting to remind everybody, it's a global challenge. It's a global pandemic. And ideally, all countries should be, you know, supporting WHO. Now, WHO might choose at some point to modify the international health regulations, which have to do with freedom of movement across borders and may choose to go a particular direction. But that's one of the things that I also think is so unfortunate about the pandemic is that everybody's doing their own thing, whether it's you know countries doing their own thing for their citizens, businesses doing their own thing for their bottom line. And at the end of the day, nobody's going to be better off if we don't find a way to do this. I mean, even talking about travel right now, most people know there are no children under the age of 16 that can be vaccinated. So what we're saying, okay, well, all family travel now can't happen, or yes, get babysitters, leave your kids behind. I mean, in terms of the practicalities, we'd be far better off to find ways of keeping everything open as as open as possible for everyone, rather than, I think, going down this path. But Marcus, maybe you have a solution for all of these poor countries that I'm actually very deeply worried about. Well, I, I I would agree that there is a situation here with the uh, with the poorer countries, and I think it it, provo- it offers an opportunity for Canada to get involved and help them um, through uh, Minister Gould, um, perhaps trying to bring them into this dialogue about uh, how to in- ensure that they're included in this entire process and and that they're not left out because there is that real risk. I I completely agree with you that this is a um, a Western have, you know, it's going to be the haves versus the have-nots, um, but we do have this opportunity here, and especially if we have a solution that's being worked through the WHO, let's bring these countries into that discussion and make sure that it's not just an exclusive sort of a G7 uh, issue, um, and so that we can ensure that they're also, uh, we can help secure their mobility uh, uh, internationally as well. 
All right. Now, uh, Laurie, I, I want to think when we talk about vaccine passports, I, I'm kind of wondering we're we're talking about this. There's a lot of a lot of hot air about this right now, but are they going to be, become irrelevant once we hit herd immunity or everybody's vaccinated? I mean, <laughs> I don't. It seems to me there's so many unknowns, right? Like, what if? What if um, you know we find that the vaccine is is not as effective against some variants, and we have to have more than one vaccine? Um, Canada is, is beginning to build up our manufacturing capacity, so I think that's with with the the sense that you know this we're not out of the woods on this by any stretch, and we can't really predict the future. I think there's like just as as another point I wanted to bring in is that there's a lot of macro factors here that will determine how this plays out. Like on the one hand, if you tell someone, if you tell people that this is a public health emergency, that kind of goes to Marvin's point. People are desperate. Like they don't want to live this anymore. And so mm -hmm. if the price, you know, if, if sort of like, if, if there's a sense that we do this vaccine passport and that means you can travel and we can be out of this public health mess, then people are, you know, might be more likely to sort of accept a huge cost and a number of unintended consequences because there's this sense that we'll be all better off later. That that may not pan out to be true, but when you put the, if you're weighing, you know, like kind of the urgency of a public health crisis against privacy concerns, ethical concerns, sometimes people become really focused on what is urgent. That thinking doesn't last, but it can take hold for a while. And that could affect the, the debate up front. And mm -hmm. also I think at the same time, we're, we're maybe heading into a, a sort of global, um, perhaps, you know, even in the shift with the Biden government, there's, there's, I think, maybe a greater conversation around um, multilateralism, perhaps there's a, there's an opportunity for governments to be taking more of a, of a kind of com cooperative communal sense of, of global problems. I'm probably being too optimistic here, but I figure I might as well throw it in just to, you know, for what nothing, it's worth. Nothing wrong with and, Austin. And can I just, can I just throw in one other issue, crack open another door here, and that's enforcement. So in our mind's eye, we imagine a situation that I go to an international airport I have to clear customs. Somebody has to look at my documentation as it is. They'll now check my vaccine documentation and they'll admit me or they won't admit me and solve the problem right there. But if the vaccine passport wants to be used more broadly, who's going to enforce it? As you know, during COVID, we had a mask mandate. I watched nice 18-year-old uh, tellers at a store say to somebody coming in, hey, ma'am, uh, sir, excuse me, you can't come in, you don't have a, a mask, and basically be told where to go. No one tells me what to do. This is a free country. I can do whatever. So if we were to take the vaccine passport to broaden it, it's not just about international travel, but it's what mm -hmm. I need to present to go to a hotel, it's what I need to present to go to a store, what I need to present to go to a concert. Well, who, who died and made you king? Who's going to enforce it? Is, it's fairly easy because at the border, we think of these people as border patrol officers. They look quasi-military. They kind of look like maybe they're armed and can do something. But the minute you move away from that example to any other use of a COVID passport, who's going to enforce this? And, and trust me, the police are not looking for more work. The armed forces aren't looking for more work. I, I just don't know. So it's, it's one of those things, I think, that in our in our dealing with COVID, we just want something to go back to normal. We grab onto this idea, but it's fraught with lots of problems. And I Good want to point. throw out two more problems just so that people All have right. this in their mind. One of them is many people um, are deeply worried about how this kind of um, carrot, if you will, will have some people uh, 
modify their behaviors in ways that are deeply problematic for the pandemic because we don't yet have the information about transmissibility. So basically people are thinking, great, I'll get vaccinated, I'll get this piece of paper, things will return to what I think of as normal, and they won't wear their mask, they won't social distance, etc. And we'll see problems. And we're starting to see that in some of the countries where there has been very effective vaccination. But beyond that, I think one of the other things I really want to have people think about as a very serious potential problem is that this technology, once we develop it, will be a platform. It's not going to be just for COVID-19, right? So people are going to say, hey, we've got information about COVID-19 vaccine here. Why don't we add all those other vaccines? I mean, that's that's a useful, smart thing to do. The platform's already there. And then it'll be, well, hey, why don't we just add your whole health record? That's a great thing. Whenever you travel, you'll have your health record at your disposal. And be, oh, wait a second. Didn't you do that genetic test, 23andMe? Yeah, let's put all that in there too. And it goes on and on. And so now the big question is who can demand access to that information? Could, in a new world, law enforcement say they want it? for whatever reason? Will it just be your healthcare provider? Will it be the life insurance person when you're trying to purchase that? So, you know, I think we need to think about where would we go with this technology? Think about what happened after 9-11, right? Look at how much international travel changed. If we introduce this, it will not go away. If anything, it will get added onto. And I'm not sure that's the world we really want to live in. All right, Francoise, I want to thank you. And I want to thank all our guests today on Unpublished TV. Laurie Turnbull, Director, School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Marcus Kolga, founder at disinfowatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Francoise Bayless, University Research Professor in Bioethics at Dalhousie University. And Marvin Ryder, Assistant Professor, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Now, coming up on the next Unpublished TV, with rumors swirling about a potential spring election, we'll look at uh, C-91 on the, of the Canada Elections Act and why that law was struck down as unconstitutional despite it being against misinformation. Hope you can join us for that. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.